Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Corey Shockey, who is Director of Foreign and Defense Policy at the American Enterprise Institute. So welcome one and all. I want to say just by way of introduction that Corey Shockey is the nicest big shot that you will ever meet. (laughs) So I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. So let me just set the scene. There has been this quotation from Vladimir Lenin, someone I'm not usually fond of quoting, but it is apt. He said, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And this week, looking at the completely changed complexion of the world, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's possible to say this is one of those weeks when a decade seems to have happened, or more than one. And so we are both exhilarated by the courage of the Ukrainian people and Volodymyr Zelensky, and kind of gobsmacked by the international rallying to their cause and punishing of Russia but also a little nervous about where this all is leading. So one of the things that happened just today was that a number of people, including former DNI James Clapper, have been saying, how long can we watch the shelling of civilians, the horrible suffering of civilians, and not intervene? So Corey Shockey, I'd like to start there. You said that President Biden, though you've praised him for many things, but you thought it was probably a mistake to rule out boots on the ground. But what about now? Is it crazy to be thinking or talking about no-fly zones, for example? Or what are our options other than getting into a direct military confrontation? It's a great and important question. And you're right that I think it was a mistake for President Biden, even as recently as the State of the Union address, to reassure the Russians they ran no risk of facing American troops in Ukraine, partly because I think even if we weren't planning to do it, whatever possible deterrent effect it might have would have been useful, but also because of what you suggested with James Clapper's comments that in free societies, there's an enormous amount of sympathy for the victims of aggression like this. And I can at least see several paths that would eventually lead to American involvement to help protect Ukraine. And here are just a couple. You know, we are already partisans in this fight, not only having declaimed the bravery of Ukrainians, but we are arming them. We trained and equipped them before the fight. We're sharing intelligence with them. That does make at least the weapons shipments we are sending legitimate military targets. And if the Russians, as I ardently hope they will, lose this war, as that loss becomes more apparent to them, it's easily imaginable they will begin targeting those weapons shipments, targeting the border points where they make their way into Ukraine, President Zelensky announced there are 16,000 foreign fighters that have flowed into Ukraine already, and the Ukrainian military is putting them in as reserves into regular Ukrainian military units. And the last most likely way is Russia continuing to escalate, because if, as it seems likely, their military is incapable of achieving Putin's political objectives, barbarity will increase, escalation will increase, and there could come a point where we are targeted or we are pulled by conscience to want to be involved. And does that mean that we go to war with Russia? Regrettably, it could mean that at some point. I don't think we're near that point yet, but Putin has raised his nuclear forces to the highest level 
or at least said he has. I noticed that in a Pentagon statement, they said they haven't actually seen any change. In I was going to ask Russian you about units. that. Yeah. But Putin's saying that. And even though the Russian military has had significant setbacks operationally in the first week of the war, Putin is in no way limiting the political demands he's making. Right. So apparently um, in his call with President Macron, he didn't retreat one iota from his maximalist demands that really do seem to involve repealing the end of the Soviet Union. (laughs) Yes, I think that's right. That Ukraine has no right to exist and that it will be disarmed by Russia, that NATO expansion should be rolled back, that the stationing of American troops and weapons in Europe should end. Those aren't achievable political demands. Those aren't things you can translate into military plans that are short of Armageddon. Do you think that Putin is has changed? Do you think that he is uh, in full command of his faculties or... It is such a good question, and I have no way of knowing the answer to it. Mm-hmm. It does seem, if you look back several years, that Putin at least connected what he said he wanted politically to the actions he was taking. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell whether he can't see the disconnects now or whether he's not getting information which is characteristic of late-stage authoritarian governments, where nobody wants to give the bad news because it ends badly for the messenger. Right. Or whether they genuinely don't know what's going on. I can't tell. All right. Now, speaking of information, uh, one more thing. If the last few years have shown us anything, it is that we all have a tendency to believe what we want to believe and to curate information that pleases us. Mm-hmm. And in the first week of this war, we have been getting a steady stream of news from Ukraine that is pleasing to us. The brave Ukrainians, I have no doubt that they really are brave, but that the Russians are self-sabotaging their own forces, you know, putting holes in their own gas tanks, mm-hmm. running out of food and so on and so forth. Now, I'd like to believe that's all true, but how much skepticism should we bring to this about the kinds of reports we're hearing? Well, it's certainly true that the Ukrainian government has an interest in keeping their own citizens' heart in the fight, in inspiring and shaming the rest of us to do more to help keep them independent and to make them safe. But all sorts of journalists from responsible outlets and hard-bitten war correspondents like Yaroslav Timofeyev of the Wall Street Journal are in the country and operating and not easily taken for granted by government propaganda. And they think they're seeing similar things. Damon Linker, I'm going to bring you in. There was a piece, uh, we, we should pay some tribute here to Volodymyr Zelensky because I was raised on Churchilliana, you know, and and sort of took it for granted that being brave in the face of horror and totalitarianism was the norm. But of course, most of the time, it's not. It's most of the time people are not brave and don't do the right thing. And we are living through a moment of creation of a true hero for our time. And so I just wondered if you wanted to say a few words about the meaning of Zelensky in all of this. I mean, without him, do you think things would have unfolded quite the same way? Well, not precisely, because it's been incredibly effective both for Ukrainian morale, but especially for what we saw over the initial days after the invasion from our side, from uh, the United States, but even more so from Europe. All of the things, several of which you noted at the top of the podcast, the really truly unprecedented toughness of the sanctions beyond, I think, what anyone was anticipating, uh, least of all Vladimir Putin, the, the fact that those got imposed so quickly and so severely 
the fact that you've had such a change of heart over defense posture and spending within Germany. That's like a sea generational sea change in attitude from a social uh, Democrat party uh, in the lead of the coalition, uh, uh, you know, of all things. And then, you know, everything else that we've seen in reaction from the West is a function, I think, very much of the fact that the struggle had a human face. And one who was so kind of average. He looks like just a regular guy sort of walking mm-hmm. around. Um, there haven't been quite as many of them in recent days because I think he's been pretty busy. But in the days before Kiev itself had been shelled, uh, he would take these selfie videos of himself standing in front of landmarks in the city with a few of his aides. Uh, you know, just a minute long. Uh, here we are. We're still here. You can't scare me. We're going to fight to the death because you're invaders. We did nothing to deserve this. And of course, the great speech that he gave uh, the night the invasion commenced that was so moving, where he spoke in Russian to the Russian people saying, we're no threat to you. We, we, You're invading our country. Please don't do this. I mean, that's gold when it comes to morale boosting and for the entire moral tenor of a struggle. And I know- By the uh, way, can I interrupt for one quick second and just say that uh, for almost all normal people, that was inspiring. Although Laura Ingram of Fox News mocked him for it. (laughs) They'll always find reasons when their their interest (laughs) is so completely misaligned with the events. They're going to come up with some kind of an excuse to try to undermine it. But I think even the kind of mild shift in, say, someone like Tucker Carlson, who went so far in the pro-Putin direction in the week before the invasion, the uncomfortable pivoting that we've seen from people like that in our own politics is a largely a function of, geez, how can we be against this guy? I mean, there's nothing like having a face and a voice as the image of the struggle. Listeners to the podcast know I tend to be a little more on the realist side, a little bit more in favor of foreign policy restraint, but all bets are off for me. I mean, this has been an extraordinary week. And my own personal history, before my skepticism about some of the post 9 11 wars, I was very much on the right side of the Cold War. And it's very, very different when you have an intact democratically elected government facing an onslaught from an autocratic dictator who's trying to topple it. I mean, that is a completely different geopolitical situation than I think some of the more muddled situations we've gotten involved in, understandably, after 9-11. And so I think I'm joining with pretty much everyone else in the Western world and just standing back both in disgust at what Russia is doing and in awe of Zelensky and everyone sticking around on the ground in Ukraine fighting for their own independence. It's heartening. Linda, last week I ran into Corey at a conference we were both attending and I said, if I were China, I would move against Taiwan right now. This was in the early hours of the war. But today, I would say the opposite. I would say that the way the world has has rallied against Russia makes it far less likely that Taiwan is in danger now. Do you think I'm right about that or not? And subhead, let's talk a little bit about China's role in all this. There was a meeting, actually, between Xi and Putin. And according to the papers, China was aware of Russia's intentions and uh, just asked that they please delay their invasion until after the Olympics. Yeah, wasn't that great? I think you're absolutely right, Mona. I think it is less likely today than it was even a week ago that uh, China would move against Taiwan. And there are a number of reasons for that. And and certainly Corey could talk with more expertise than I can about it. But the fact is Taiwan has a very powerful military. There are also economic ties and cultural ties between uh, the mainland and Taiwan. There are Taiwanese now who live in mainland China, who do business there. So I think it is probably less likely. That's not to say 
that if Putin succeeds, if the West begins to back down and Putin is successful at this land grab, that it might not inspire at some later point. And I think a lot of it does depend on the United States. And I'm very glad to hear Corey say that she is disappointed in the president's words during the State of the Union and subsequently that we will not ever put boots on the ground in Ukraine. He should not be saying that. I know his audience is a domestic audience. His audience is talking to uh, elements within the United States uh, that are worried about us getting involved in more foreign wars. But the fact is, this war, we have absolutely no idea how it's going to turn out. They are doing barbaric things in Ukraine. They are using weapons like the uh, thermobaric weapon, which sucks the oxygen out of the air in buildings and out of the lungs of human beings in those buildings. They are bombing indiscriminately. They are using cluster bombs, and they are trying to wreak utter destruction in Ukraine. So uh, we don't know what's going to happen. And I cannot believe that the American people are going to sit by and see hospitals bombed, see children in cancer wards who are being treated in the basement uh, of those hospitals being unable to get treatment. What happens when the people in Kiev start to starve, uh, when food does not get in? You know, he, we keep saying we're not going to have, um, you know, we're not going to create a safe um, air uh, and put in uh NATO or other aircraft that would uh, patrol the skies. But at some point, we may have to do an airlift into Ukraine in order to keep the Ukrainian people from literally starving to death. And it wouldn't be the first time, by the way, that the Ukrainian people have starved uh, because of a madman uh, in Moscow. Of course, Stalin instigated what turned out to be the Great Famine that killed millions of people in that region. And so I, I think all bets are off. We don't know what's going to happen, and we better be prepared for anything to happen. And the American people have got to understand this, and that requires President Biden having a frank talk with the American people. Now, I don't blame him for not necessarily doing that in the State of the Union. That's not what States of the Union are for. But at some point, he is going to have to make Americans understand what the stakes are, and the stakes are American stakes, not just the people of Ukraine, but we are talking about an assault on democracy, an assault on freedom, and being able to rewrite borders at will so long as you have the weapons uh, to kill uh, massive numbers of civilians. Yeah, a, uh, we are we are facing the sort of naked aggression, the kind of naked aggression that the United Nations was created to prevent. And so the world is being tested. And I'm going to come next to Bill Galston. But before we do that, we're going to take a short break. This episode of Beg to Differ is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, which features in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds, like Charles Koch and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Every Friday, Jordan also releases a Feedback Friday episode to respond to listener questions, covering everything from conventional problems like leaving a dream job to doozies like helping someone escape an abusive relationship. You can also hear the latest news about Russia featuring a heavy-hitting interview with Garry Kasparov and his experiences with authoritarian governments, and that's just the beginning. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Bill, you were writing this week about the meaning of this for Europe, and I'm going to read you back your own words. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had the same effect on Germans that Germany's invasion of Poland did on Brits in 1939, and the joint Russian-Chinese declaration at the beginning of February may turn out to be this century's Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So talk to us a bit about the change in Europe, and then I'd like to hear your reaction to what Corey said about the possible risks and that we may not be able, and Linda's comments too, we may not be able to stay aloof. I'll deal with both of those points in order, Mona. First of all, 
the bulk of my column was devoted to the astonishing change in Germany's foreign and defense policy. I've been talking to seasoned observers of Germany, in, including German nationals, who have tracked these developments very closely, and they were stunned when they woke up to discover what Chancellor Schultz had told the German parliament last weekend. It is stunning that he called for an emergency defense appropriation equal to about two years of Germany's annual defense spending. Uh, He followed that up with a pledge that Germany will immediately meet, if not exceed, the 2% of GDP target uh, that American leaders have been pressuring Germany to meet for decades now. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline appears to be dead indefinitely. Germany, after decades of opposition to the idea, has authorized the transfer of German-made weapons to, to Ukraine. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, and it's a perfect illustration of the quotation from Lenin with which you began this program. Germany caught up with three decades of post-Cold War urging from the United States and other powers, in effect, to begin rearming so it can take its rightful place among the powers of the earth. And at the same time, governments throughout Europe have reoriented their foreign policy. They've been sobered up and uh, I note with interest that even Mr. Orban has been forced to moderate his pro-Russian views. And Turkey. And Turkey as well. Turkey is a very interesting story that would take more time to unpack than we have on this show. So I've seen nothing to change my mind about the revolution in thinking in Western and Central Europe, but Western Europe in particular. And unlike some others, I do not expect it to be reversed if and when the current conflict ends. I think this is a permanent change. This has been an enormous shock to the European system. And a lot of illusions have been, you know, have been stripped away in a very short period of time. With regard to the second question, we are going to have to ask ourselves as a country, are we willing to risk going to war with Russia over Ukraine? This is a fateful question. But if we, for example, initiate an airlift and a Russian fighter jet shoots down a U.S. C-130, that question will be squarely before us. If we establish a no-fly zone and a Russian aircraft shoots down an American aircraft, what are we going to do? We have to think through each step in the escalation ladder before we adopt a policy that could lead us farther up that ladder than anyone wants to go. Are we willing to risk nuclear war? Because that is the question that Vladimir Putin has put on the table. I've just begun to think about these questions. And I suspect that most Americans have just begun to think about these questions. I suspect that the Biden administration has just begun to think about these questions. But these are the questions that are now on the table. And I just hope that whatever we do, we go into it with our eyes wide open so that no one can say afterwards, if only we had realized what the risks were, maybe we would have thought twice. Having said this, I think it is a serious question. Do I have an immediate response of revulsion or opposition to the idea that Ukraine is worth fighting for or maybe worth fighting for? No, I don't but we have to think it through. Damon, did you have a quick comment? Yeah, and I'm actually pleased that I'm coming right after Bill's comment because I can briefly build on his last uh, points in the second half of his response because the conversation up till now has been very much focused with Linda's comments and then leading into Bill's at the beginning about the moral dimension of this as if we're going to be kind of sitting back watching 
terrible crimes committed against the Ukrainian people and their country by Russia, and then we will make a kind of decision that we can't tolerate seeing this and make a kind of a humanitarian intervention militarily. And while that might happen, I think it's more likely that it's going to be the kinds of scenarios that Bill laid out where we're in a really, I mean, this is an extraordinary situation here. We have a vice grip on the Russian economy and we are crushing it and it's going to get much, much worse. We also have no stated off-ramps. We haven't really expressed what Russia could do to reverse the sanctions at all other than a complete pullback, which Putin has very much committed to not doing. In fact, as you said earlier, he's doing the opposite. He's keeping maximalist demands. These things together, combined with the humanitarian bombardment of Ukraine, it could very easily lead us to a ratcheting situation where we try to help more. Russia gets increasingly exasperated by what we're doing economically and our shipping of weapons to the people they're trying to pulverize on the ground. And they begin lashing out at us and a kind of tit-for-tat escalatory spiral that uh, that ends up involved in a direct shooting war with Russia with actually very little deliberation. And again, I'm not saying that as, oh my gosh, we should run the other way to avoid this. I think we're in this. And the reality of the current situation is it is probably the most dangerous thing the world has faced since around the Cuban Missile Crisis, I would say. And it has a much greater and a longer term dynamic to it. This is not going to be over in 13 days. So I'll leave it at that. Sorry for going yeah. on. But. No, no, that's uh, those are all really good points. Corey, let me finish this topic with you. So it's really all just Putin. And so we don't know if he's entirely sane at this point in his life. We know he's always been evil, but we're not sure that he's fully functional. My question is, so there have been massive demonstrations in Russia, despite the risks that the people are running uh, in protest of the war. We have to assume that uh, there are lots of voices, we keep hearing this, that within the Russian power vertical, as they say, who are unhappy with Putin. But can you imagine a scenario where he is deposed? How would that happen exactly? I mean, does somebody have to shoot him? What would do it? So, Mona, I know you've seen the movie Death of Stalin. So yes. I know, you know <laughs> the answer to that. In seriousness, I would say a couple of things. The first is that we don't actually know whether it's just Putin, right? Lavrov, Shoigu, Gerasimov, Others are saying things consistent with Putin, and we don't know whether that's they fear for their lives or whether they're actual supporters. So we don't know if killing Putin would be adequate to this. But we do know that Putin remaining in power, we probably don't see an end to this other than by force of arms, because he's not creating political off-ramps. Two other things that I think all of us need to keep in the center of the conversation that first, we are not causing the risks of US and Russia going to war. Russia is causing those risks. And so if we start humanitarian airlifts, that's not us running risks of war with Russia. It's Russia trying to starve a population into submission that is creating the risk of war with the United States. And the second thing is that it's really important that we not lose our sympathy for the fact that Ukrainians are bearing burdens for us all right now. <laughs> what they are suffering in the starvation of Mariupol, in the bombing of Kharkiv, in the killing of civilians in Kiev is fighting to prevent Russia from overturning the international order as we have known it for the last 70 years. Um, and so, uh, as Damon said, and, and others too, what was hard to think about even two weeks ago, we now have to think about what a post-Putin Russia 
be willing to end the war, being willing to live within the existing international order. And we begin to see positive signs, not just, uh, you know, that 7,000 Russians have been arrested in the last week for bravely protesting their government. Members of the Russian parliament begin to say, hey, that's not what I thought I was voting for. Russian oligarchs begin to suggest that negotiated end to the war is a good idea, even short of Putin being murdered. There may still be ways to constrain his power because even authoritarians have to have a basis for that support. And we have dramatically weakened that basis, both by the economic sanctions, by the international isolation, by the beautiful, uncoordinated actions of civil society in the West, right? Uh, Finland saying, we're going to close our airspace. Um, Intel saying, we're not going to send silicon chips to Russia. Um, FedEx saying, we won't make deliveries. Shell writing off a $26 billion loss in order not to be associated with Rosnap. That kind of activism really can put pressure even inside authoritarian societies. And it's a beautiful thing to see it in full swing among the free countries. Oh, a hundred percent. Bill, did you want to comment on that? Mainly, if I may, to ask Corey a question, which was a version of the question that you put to me. I take the point about whose fault this is. And believe me, I'm under no illusions on that point. A lot of people are now recommending the possibility of an airlift involving American aircraft, sort of you know, Berlin airlift redux uh, yeah. to relieve the siege of Kiev if it comes to that. And my question to Corey is very simply, if the Russians react to that in the worst possible way, what are our options? And at the bottom line, can we, should we go to war with Russia over Ukraine? That's not a rhetorical question. I don't know where I stand on that, and I'd be interested to find out where you do. I guess the first thing I would say is I agree with your earlier comment that all of us need to very calmly, very prayerfully reflect on what we're actually willing to, the risks we are actually willing to run in this circumstance. But I do believe that a Vladimir Putin who is successful in Ukraine will not be satisfied with Ukraine. And so for me, the question is, if we cannot compel Russia to stop doing what they're doing, is it a better choice to try and fight Russia in Ukraine now or to give them the opportunity of succeeding there and fight them in the Baltic states or Poland or elsewhere? Because I do believe, and it is, it's a conjecture on my part, so everybody should think through whether I'm right and if not, why not? But I do believe that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, that we will see a continuum of this kind of behavior from Vladimir Putin's Russia. And I personally think we will have to stop it. And I would prefer to stop it when the Russians are having operational difficulties in Ukraine than once they have a chance to learn the lessons from this and reconstruct their force and deal with it elsewhere. The second thing I would say, though, is I'm skittish about humanitarian airlifts and I'm skittish about no-fly zones. Uh, a no-fly zone is an act of war, even though you are going to have to force Russian aircraft out of Ukraine's airspace. So that's air-to-air -air combat. Second, a humanitarian airlift would put the onus of escalation on the Russians. They would have to shoot planes down. But the reason we did it in West Berlin is that we didn't have friendly territory we could operate in. And as long as there's an insurgency in Ukraine, it makes a lot more sense if you want to provide humanitarian aid to do it on the ground, where even if a convoy were to be stopped or pinned down, Ukrainians can make good use 
of the equipment, of the food, of the blankets, of everything we're sending by just pillaging uh, what gets stopped. So I think there are um, riskier and less risky ways and more and less advantageous ways to to engage in humanitarian assistance and to engage in the use of military force. But Bill's fundamental point, I think, is the most important one, which is any and all of those make us part of this war. My own view is that by providing the arms we are, by providing the intelligence we are, we are already partisans. And so I think it's in our interest to prevent Putin from succeeding in Ukraine. Well, thank you. And uh, with that, we will turn to our next topic. All right. At the risk of um, doing a segue that is almost as awkward as President Biden's was in the State (laughs) of the Union address (laughs) from these world historical events and the clash of civilizations and aggression to um, domestic matters, let us take a few minutes to evaluate the President's State of the Union address. Let's start with the sort of overview, Damon. I think of all of you, you were the least enthusiastic about this speech. So I'm going to go to you first. What did you not like? Well, um, you know, I always feel bad. Biden seems like such a good guy. And the stakes in our politics are lamentably so high. You know, my desire for him to succeed uh, are extremely elevated because the alternative is really scary. But that said, I was not blown away by this speech. I think it was a mistake to, well, first of all, it wasn't great that it was delayed and ended up landing, you know, just a few days after this invasion. They obviously couldn't have anticipated that ahead of time. But the result was they effectively tried to, uh, you know, staple together two very different speeches. And the first, whatever it was, 10 or 15 minutes of it about Ukraine and Russia deserved to be an Oval Office address to the American people on that topic. It's grass its importance, um, the, as Bill noted earlier, its its potential ramifications, and Corey, of course, too, its potential ramifications for uh, America and the future of the world were so great. It's it felt odd to be there at the top of the speech, and then, as you noted, Mona, to then pivot with his go-to transition of folks. And then, then he's talking about, you know, the, the remnants of the Build Back Better Act and calling it something else and all the other comparative trivialities of domestic politics felt really off to me. Um, beyond that, I think the highlight of the speech was uh, definitely him uh, distancing himself and the party from the whole uh, defund the police business. That was a kind of depersonalized sister soldier moment for him. So that was a good point. There were other good things sprinkled throughout it, but I, I in general, I, I, his delivery is, is, is very, it's doesn't, it's not for me. I know a lot of Americans might find it charming. It, it, it's, I find him hard to listen to and much of the substance of it did feel even more sort of trivial than uh, than these things are as kind of laundry lists of priorities, each of them supposed to placate a different faction of the party. It didn't really work for me. And I ended up at the end thinking like, well, if we normally forget about the content of these things after 48 hours, this one will probably get 24 hours. Uh, so yeah, not again, I don't want to be too harsh. And it is true that it will be forgotten. You know, onward, keep trying to do the best you can, make deals with Joe Manchin, get some elements of the domestic agenda passed as we head into the midterms and and look at this in the rear view and forget about it. That's sort of my attitude about it. Linda, I didn't think the speech was very good for a lot of reasons, partly because I didn't think the writing was very good uh, and the delivery wasn't any better throughout most of it, including the point when, unfortunately, Biden found himself praising the resolve of the Iranian people when he meant to say Ukrainian people. (laughs) Um, So yeah, not not his finest 
moment. Um, I did, however, I will say this, I think fund the police was a good use of a slogan. I mean, I'm amazed that nobody thought of that before. He said, don't defund, fund the police. That was great. Uh, and good for him. And it, and, and as Damon points out, it solves, uh, it, it begins to address a problem that the democratic party has to solve. But I will note that among the things he addressed in this endless speech the Paycheck Fairness Act and paid leave, apprenticeships, $15 minimum wage, Pell Grants, the PRO Act, gun control, universal background checks, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Act, secure the border, pathway to citizenship for dreamers. All right, I'll stop. But there's plenty more. So if ever there were a moment where you would say, this is not the State of the Union speech to be a laundry list. This is the State of the Union speech to elevate the presidency of Biden to put it in historical context as a defender of the free world and what that means in democracy. Um, and to, then to make maybe one or two other points. I mean, it's fine to talk about infrastructure and, but I had a particular problem with the whole America first stuff, which, you know, I know polls well, but uh, is actually the exact opposite of what we should do to fight inflation. But what do you say? Well, uh, not surprisingly, I, I don't disagree with you. I do not beg to differ. I beg to agree. Uh, look, Mona, this was a typical laundry list of programs that have constituencies and particularly in Congress with the president trying to appease uh, some you know, who are to the left of him, uh, not making sure even though he said fund the police, he could actually have gotten much more heft and done a better job on those issues. You know, too bad he didn't read Elaine K. Mark and Bill Galston's article uh, in which they talked about what this administration needs to do to be able to recenter itself. And frankly, in just purely political matters, you're not speaking to the base of the Democratic Party when you're giving a State of the Union. You are speaking to all of America. And as someone who just recently, a little over a year ago, won an election by winning independent voters, you have to talk to those voters about things they care about. He didn't talk in any comprehensive way about inflation. You know, you don't beat up on companies for raising prices. Inflation is very, very complicated. Obviously, I happen to think that pouring a whole lot of money, both in monetary policy, but also in the way in which we've used fiscal policy to try and stave off economic problems from the pandemic, have not helped inflation. Clearly, the pandemic has taken people out of the labor force that we desperately need. And so if he had sort of had a comprehensive way of talking about what we need to do on inflation and how it is that his administration is thinking about these issues. And the same thing on crime. Crime is not a federal issue. It is a state and local issue. Nonetheless, people's fear about what is happening on the streets and those of us who are policy wonks who look at things like uniform crime statistics know that we are nowhere near the height of violent crime in the United States that we experienced at other periods in, in our history, including uh, the early 1990s, doesn't matter. The fact is we've seen a huge increase in violent crime in our cities, uh, and not just in the cities and suburbs and elsewhere, and people are worried about this. They're concerned about it. So again, I would like him to have talked in a broader way and not just throwing out programs. And I just, I was very disappointed because he needs to get back to where he has a prayer of a chance of getting reelected. And right now, all of the polls are telling us that he does not. Bill Galston, some people think that this was a sort of popularist speech. They think he is trying to move to the center. Ruth Marcus and the Washington Post seem to think so, and uh, a number of others. What did you um, What did you make of that? Well, you can find evidence for that argument in the speech. There's no question about it. Not only on police matters and criminal justice, but the way he talked about schools and the importance of keeping them open, for example. It is clear that the White House has heard the criticism uh, and they responded to it. But unfortunately, the speech moved in so many different directions 
that it conveyed no sense of direction whatsoever. So my bottom line political judgment is that if the president thought that this speech would help him build his job approval, which as every political scientist will tell you, is the single most critical leading indicator of the performance of the president's party in the midterm election, I think he and the people who drafted the speech are going to be very disappointed because I see no evidence as a political matter that the speech did move the needle in the direction that the White House wanted it to. And so for that reason, I would like to associate myself for the first and last time with (laughs) Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who said, and I quote, it was a missed opportunity, though I suspect she has a rather different conception of what the missed opportunity consists in. And uh, even on the good part of the speech, part on Ukraine, I was struck by the fact that the president failed to frame the issue in broader geopolitical and historical terms. It's fine to say that this is part of the struggle between democracy and autocracy, uh, but I think he needs to get more specific. Are we heading toward a new period of confrontation with the axis of autocracy that begins on the Baltic and goes all the way to the Pacific? Are we willing to make all of the adjustments that the end of the post-Cold War period, which occurred last week, will force upon us? And it wasn't a summons to battle. It was nothing like the speech that Harry Truman gave in March of 1947 in response to communist threats to Greece and Turkey, which is the most obvious historical parallel, it seems to me. So I was disappointed, as others were, although for somewhat different reasons. Corey, Bill anticipated what was going to be my question to you, which is how you viewed the initial part of the speech about Ukraine and its framing. And in particular, again, I I also sort of hate to criticize Biden. I want him to be successful but there was a kind of smallness to the way he approached it. You know, yes, he did a good job of, you know, cooperating with our European allies and lining up these sanctions and doing the right things. Yes, he did. But, you know, he then said, I'll be honest with you, as I've always promised, a Russian dictator invading a foreign country has costs around the world. And then he says, instead of, but, you know, this is the price of freedom. And I know Americans will join with, you know, freedom loving people around the world to bear the brunt of whatever it takes to stop this atrocity. He says, I'm taking robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at Russia's economy. And I will use every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers. That wasn't the man meeting the moment, was it? No, it really wasn't. I absolutely agree with Bill's criticisms. Uh, As this conversation amongst us has made clear, there are going to be big, grave decisions. And the president is not preparing Americans to shoulder our responsibilities. You know, today he announced a $32 billion supplemental request for assistance to Crimea and pandemic relief. And out of the blue, he didn't use the State of the Union to talk about why that was necessary, to talk about the need for higher defense spending. He also missed the opportunity to talk about our, I mean, for something that would have advanced his own uh, preferred policies of green energy. He didn't talk about reliance on Russian oil and gas and the importance of making ourselves and our allies less reliant on it. So I share the disappointment that I think he didn't give a context for what we're seeing. He didn't prepare Americans for burdens. Instead, he did the opposite. He made it sound like our adversaries will have to bear all the risks and costs of this dangerous new world. And that encourages recklessness instead of helping people make sober, sensible judgments and sacrifices in support of his policies. All right. And with that, 
we will take a brief break and return with our highlights and lowlights of the week. Homeowners who have not taken advantage of today's low interest rates are overpaying their mortgage. Make sure this isn't you. It just takes a 10-minute call to my friends at American Financing, America's home for home loans, where you'll get a free no-obligation mortgage review from a salary-based mortgage consultant. So there's no pressure. And you're not paying any upfront or hidden fees. You're just learning about the different ways you can save up to $1,000 a month. That's right, a month. Think of what you can do with that kind of money, the kind of difference it can make on your budget. Then make the call to American Financing to learn more and do it now before rates rise. You could end up skipping up to two payments and could close in as fast as 10 days. Call 888-991-9788. That's 888-991-9788. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net slash thrill. NMLS 182334. NMLSConsumerAccess.org. All right. Let us begin the final segment, highlight or low light. I'm going to go to you first, Linda Chavez. Well, this week, um, my highlight of the week is what happened in a courtroom in Los Angeles. Uh, It had to do with a federal court filing that the January 6th Select Committee filed in the case against John Eastman, who our listeners uh, know as the man who tried to uh, convince Vice President Pence, among others, that uh, it was within his power to determine that Donald Trump, not uh, not Joe Biden, had been elected president uh, in November of, of 2020. And in that case, John Eastman, who claims that he uh, was providing legal advice to the President of the United States, says that many of the documents that he produced, including emails uh, during a critical period just before and just after the January 6th writing occurred, were privileged because they are guarded by attorney-client privilege. Well, in federal court, the January 6th committee said, uh, wait a minute, there is no attorney-client privilege if, in fact, both the attorney and the client were engaged in a criminal conspiracy. And what the January 6th committee suggested was that there was a good basis from all of the material that they've collected in their many hearings that John Eastman and Donald Trump were attempting to defraud the United States and attempting to interfere with a congressional action. And both of those would be criminal. The January 6th committee, of course, cannot file criminal charges, but it suggests that there may indeed be a referral coming out of the January 6th committee to the Justice Department. And there is an excellent article that I would uh, recommend to our listeners. It's called United States versus Donald Trump, a model prosecution memo on the conspiracy to pressure Vice President Pence. And it is, uh, it appeared in Just Security, and it was by Barbara McQuaid. So it lays all of this out very well. And you can also, and I will provide a link so our listeners can see it. You can also uh, read the 60 some page uh, filing by the January 6th committee. So uh, that was a highlight of the week uh, for me. Okay, Damon Linker. Well, you know, my my day job is as a columnist uh, for the week, but uh, it it seems like over the last week, uh, my real job has been uh, a full-time reader of articles about what's going on uh, in Ukraine and the entire conflict. There's been a ton of really, really good journalism written about this uh, by very informed people over the last week. I could point to uh, any number of like a dozen pieces that are worth reading. But I'll single out just one. Uh, This is an op-ed by a historian uh, named Mary Elise Cerati. Uh, She has a book out that's also very good titled uh, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of a Post-Cold War Stalemate. And she had uh, a very good guest essay in the New York Times this week titled, I'm a Cold War Historian, We're in a Frightening New Era, which of course we all know. But there's a lot of good detail in here in this piece about 
just how during the actual Cold War with with the Soviet Union, we developed all of these sort of informal and formal uh, arms treaties with the Soviet Union that kind of kept things contained. A lot of the informal issues had to do with military engagements. You know, what happened if if one of our planes strayed over a border by a mile or two, how we would engage with uh, the Russian plane that came to meet it and vice versa, that enabled us to keep events from spiraling out of control. And how she, the, the author, Mary Cerati, uh, goes through in some detail about how a lot of this from those informal norms to uh, nuclear weapons and, and other kinds of weapons treaties have unraveled over recent years. And uh, she concludes with the final paragraph, which I will read, where she says, becoming a historian requires the ability to develop a sense of periodization. I sense a period ending. I am now deeply afraid that Mr. Putin's recklessness may cause the years between the Cold War and the COVID-19 pandemic to seem a housing in period to future Historians, compared with what came after, I fear we may find ourselves missing the old Cold War. God forbid. Okay, Corey Shockey. My favorite thing of the week I have already alluded to, which is the energizing of civil society in free countries, taking a whole host of largely unsynchronized activities to assist Ukrainians and penalize the Russian government by whatever means they are available to us, because this is how liberty prospers. Yeah, it's so important to remember that the Russians are invading a neighboring country merely for the crime of wanting to live in peace as a democracy. It's about as stark as it can get. Bill Galston. My highlight of the week was Vladimir Zelensky's response to the U.S. offer to evacuate him from Kiev, to which he replied, I need ammunition, not a ride. And with that, we learned exactly what Winston Churchill would have said if he had been a Jewish comedian. Uh, and you know, it also led me you know, to suggest to some Democratic insiders that to prepare for the possibility uh, that President Biden chooses not to run for re-election, that we draw up our own short list of Jewish comedians. Uh, <laughs> And although the thought of President Larry David does rather boggle the mind, but, you know, we could do a lot worse, and, and I fear we will. If only Mel Brooks weren't so old. You're only as old as you feel. All right. Well, as somebody said, go figure. Two countries elected television personalities to be their highest ranking official and they wind up with Zelensky and we round, wound up with Trump. Uh, all right. I just want to draw some quick attention to a study from the Institute for Family Studies. This is a subject close to my heart. I've written about it extensively. It doesn't come up much on this podcast just because it's a cultural matter and we don't usually get into these things, but there is just a cornucopia of evidence in the social science data showing that intact families are the most important thing that anybody can give a child. And it is particularly true for poor children because obviously wealthier parents can compensate for the lack of family stability in other ways, but poor kids really don't have those options. And, um, the Institute for Family Studies has a new study looking at uh, family structure and stability and how it affects children from poor families, comparing very similarly situated kids in terms of income, race, region, and so forth. But those who come from married parent families, two-parent families, are just so much better able to cope with the adversities of life than their compatriots who come from single parent homes. And this is no slam on single parents who 
do a really tough job and they are owed a lot of admiration for that, but rather to encourage everybody to encourage marriage as much as possible, especially for the poor. All right. With that, I would like to thank our honored guest, Corey Shockey. Um, and I would like to thank our producer, Katie Cooper. Joe Armstrong sat in this week as our sound engineer. We appreciate that. And we also want to thank all of our listeners. You can reach me at monacharonatthebulwark.com. I read all of your emails and I hope you will patronize our advertisers because that too will help our program. And please rate and review us. That also makes a huge difference. And even if you want to criticize, I'll still read your emails. So thank you so much. And we will return next week as every week. Thank you.